Hello to everybody, Facebook land and Mike Springston FFC podcast. We're ready to go into part four of understanding Acts chapter two. Here we are addressing inaccurate understanding of the message of the Holy Spirit. So I want to welcome all those of you from around the world that are tuning in with us and listening from whatever international country or from the United States. Uh, I'm praying that God is opening our eyes to the truth. Uh, I want to invite you to contact me at springston56 at gmail.com, mikespringstonministries.com, ffcma.org, or through Family Fellowship Chapel's direct messaging. We'd love to hear from you. I want to remind you of our book, I Surrender. It's available on Amazon and in your local bookstores. So it is 430 on Monday afternoon, and we're going to do a 30-minute podcast here and begin part four of Understanding Acts chapter 2 and bring about some understanding of error that is taught in the Word of God. Father, I pray that you'll open our eyes that we can see and our ears that we can hear, the heart that we can understand what the Word of God is saying to us, and then... May we apply it to our lives so that we can be changed into the image of your dear Son. Now, Father, we ask that Jesus would speak to us through the Holy Spirit. He would show us what we need to know, do, understand, and demonstrate, and we'd receive it and release it to your people. From there, we'd be changed, transformed. We would be brought into a deeper understanding of Jesus Christ. We ask every bit of this in the lovely name of Jesus Christ, who is our High Priest, our Lord, and our Man of the Godhead. Amen and amen. By the way, we reached 200 listening hours of a live audience uh, on our Podbean site. What a blessing that is, our Sunday morning live audiences. So today, the question I'm leading with is, will there be another outpouring of the Spirit? And my answer to that is undoubtedly yes. And my reasoning is because history tells us that God has done so at every major intersection over the last 100 years. And we have his word on it. We have Acts 2.17 and Joel 2.28. But that, however, my friends, is not the question. There is a question that looms much, much larger and has much greater impact with each passing moment. Who is going to be there seeking the outpouring when it comes? Who will allow the outpouring to minister to them as God defines the time and the place for which it will happen? Who will translate this opportunity into their spiritual economy and allow the Spirit to accomplish what it's been released to accomplish? Here's one thing we do know based uh, upon our history concerning what has been revealed. Those who oppose the move of the Holy Spirit will continue to oppose that move. And when God determines to release His Spirit in ways that produce both marvelous signs and wonders, those who desire to remain unattached to that move will do just that. They will cry. They will ask. They will whine about what's going wrong. They will attempt to provide intellectual resistance to the cultural switches that are occurring. 
they will ask, where is God and why isn't God? Clutch the Bible and continue to deny the word of the Holy Spirit. Now you would say, Pastor, why would you say that? If times get bad enough, surely people will come to see what God is trying to do to prepare them, to protect them, to bring them under the covering of his wings. My friends, I can tell you that history tells me that there is not a chance that that's going to happen. Why would you say that, you ask? Well, friends, I've just defined some of the extreme large events that have come across the landscape of our country, and not one of them changed the rhetoric concerning the infilling, the operations, or the work of the Holy Spirit. Not one of them caused any denomination to revisit their doctrine. Not one of them made them reconsider how they were teaching and preaching the Word of God, and not one of them caused them to examine more closely even the teachings of Jesus Christ, not one of them were even seen as being related to the preceding move of the Spirit. Huh. That's tragic. What happened? Well, I saw this quote today, and I want to share it with you. And in my opinion, it is absolutely true. Here it is. There's things are going dark very slowly. And they're going dark so slowly that we, the people, think that now dim light is just normal. What's that mean? We've lived in a world where darkness is slowly invading and crossing over into the things that were once very plainly lit and identified between spiritual and natural between uh, the operation of the church and the world. But now, it's not so plainly lit. How did this invasion occur? Well, I'll tell you. It's very simple. The church put the brakes on how to keep our ministry as a light that was not going to be covered with a basket. We accepted a lot of compromise. And all of a sudden, normal is looking dim. So as the Holy Spirit is revealed and released, we spend more time associated to the things that are the dimly lit move of darkness because they have invaded and made absent the perfect work of the light that was normal. What did the church do? Well, I'll tell you what they did. They stepped right over the clear vision of what God had laid at their door and went on with their business as usual. That's what we've done with this glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the flippant handling of truth. We would rather remain in our comfort zone of intellectual design, go from light and let light so dim that the invasion of darkness and the lack of a true direction seems normal. Well, when the next outpouring comes, we've seen it in times past as being opened into the church and into the community. 
My friend, that could happen at any moment. As we have seen it happen in the book of Acts, how the Holy Spirit came upon a few who were seeking him. And my friend, in essence, that is happening now. While Jerusalem was at the party, at the Feast of Pentecost, they were praying over Jerusalem and the sin that was going on in Jerusalem. And the Holy Spirit came. And a great day happened, but only 3,000 people came to know him. Here's the issue. And here I want you to hear me very good. There are a few things that we have done that diminish the likelihood of those who are in desperate need of receiving what is being poured out by God with respect to the Holy Spirit. Number one, we've grieved the Holy Spirit with our words and our disdain, our doubt and our unbelief, our misunderstandings, our misrepresentations, our misidentifications, our putting everything into an intellectual box without having all the pieces to truly identify what God was doing. We've indoctrinated people to disbelieve in the operation of the Holy Spirit, uh, particularly with the understanding of the evidence of tongues that would allow us to become the witnesses that God called us to be to the level of which he called us to give us his glory. Not the glory that he had from the foundation of the world, that was another glory, but the glory of which he was serving and being a servant to the Father before Israel and then turning it over to the, the apostles and then turning it over to Paul. Yeah, we rejected all services that practiced the operation of the Spirit. So therefore, we will not act out of order in places where he's not invited. He, the Holy Spirit, will not act out of order in places where he is just not invited. We want to talk about how the Holy Spirit does the work of saving you. Well, he's not going to act out of order in those places that do not want the true indwelling witness of Jesus Christ. And people will come and the Holy Spirit will honor his word and save them. And they will remain at the cross and struggle through life and often uh, because of the truth of God's word, not fulfill the growth and development that is required in following Jesus Christ. There's two types of people. There are those that get saved and they remain where they are and they become what they are and they struggle and go up and down and their sin life and their sin nature. And my friend, those people, unfortunately, the perfection and the holiness and the purity that we find in the lampstand, in the tabernacle, they're not measuring to that. They're not following Christ. Now, the general church then is not seeking the move of the Spirit, not the general worldwide church. There are churches that are, and there are churches that do. Some of those churches do it quite well. Others of those churches do it strictly in the flesh. And that is not an acceptable place to be. The general church, however, in our day, in our moment, is seeking a political covenant 
We are not seeking a spiritual answer. They're seeking a political covenant, covenant that they perceive will solve the societal problems. They're not looking for a spiritual answer. They're not attempting to operate in the covenant where Jesus Christ is Lord. They are attempting to gather around the political covenant as if it is in a political covenant that the problems and the ills of our day is going to be solved. Well, we become as those who Jesus told the disciples about when he said, they cannot see him, neither do they know him. Our spiritual well-being because of the invasion of a slow darkness that is turning even the church world into a dim light, that has dimmed that light, and that dimness to us in the church world now seems normal. Why? Because we're no longer tied to things in the spirit world, my friend. We're tied to things in the natural world. So now the natural world cannot know him. It cannot operate in the Spirit of God. It will not operate in the Spirit of God because the Spirit of God is revealed spirit to spirit. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So we no longer accept spiritual things as the fact that comes upon the final answer. We are no longer led by the truth. We are led by our truth, a relativism. A moral relativism has taken over the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me speak to that. The natural world is determined that they would express truth as it was relative to them. Their beliefs were the beliefs that led them in their decision making. Whatever they believed only had to be the truth. And it became to them an individual truth. Now, I want you to hear what I'm about to say. Unfortunately, they did not come by moral relativism on their own. Not quite, not by any stretch of the imagination. So where did they learn it from? The church. They learned it right in the church. Let me show you. Someone would say, explain please. The church determined exactly what parts of Scripture would be relative if they thought being saved was relevant, then it was. They chose how to make grace, love, baptism, the use of the sacraments, all relative precisely to how they wanted to believe it. You don't believe me? Go online. See how many different flavors of churches there are available in your village, town, or city. In so doing, you will locate the absolute epitome of relativism. We taught our people, church world people, how to choose for themselves what was relevant by the flavor of which they attached themselves. In so doing, they were moved past the Bible and they begin to experience life in ways that were relative to how what was spoken, preached, and taught made them feel, as well as how what was spoken, preached, and taught made them best able to make sense of their environment. My friend, this is an indictment on the church, but why? Well, it's quite simple. Paul told us in Colossians 3, 15 through 17, we simply lost the umpire. 
The Bible said, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts. To that which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of Jesus, uh, the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. So all of a sudden, we lost our umpire. We lost how the peace of God was going to rule in our hearts. What did Jesus say? John 14, he said, I'll give you peace. John 15, he said, I'll give you joy. John 16, he said, I'll give you the spirit of truth. John 17, he said, I'll give you the same glory I'm operating in. What have we done? We've turned away from the umpire. We have no one now to give us a frame of reference as to what our boundaries are, as to what's right and what's wrong. We have no one to give us a frame of reference as to when we are operating close to the edge. We have no one to call the foul, if you will. Why? Because we chose to eliminate the umpire. We chose to make the umpire do one thing. And that was to say, oh, you're saved or you're not. What a sad position. Now, I want you to look at this. This is a for instance as far as how we have misrepresented the Scripture. I've proven to you in this study that we misrepresented Acts chapter 2. I've correlated it with Ezekiel 10. I've correlated it with Joel chapter 2. I've correlated it with Acts, the, the teaching of Peter and other stories in the book of Acts, and I'm not done doing that yet. But I want you to look at John 3.16, for instance. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you know that that is the number one memory verse uh, in the world? The number one memory verse in the world. Now the question is, how do we teach this scripture? Let me show you. We tell the world God loves you. We tell the world wherever you are, God loves you. In whatever condition or whatever thing, wherever you are, what you're engaged with, know this, God loves you just like you are, exactly as you are. You can cuss, you can drink, you can be a domestic violent. God loves you. Oh, God loves you. You're never too far removed from the love of God that he could not, from wherever you are, save you. He loves you. He loves you just like you are. Well, my friend, is that really what that verse is actually teaching? Huh. Or is this verse saying that the love of God can never be separated from the sacrifice? And the work of the sacrifice that the work of the sacrifice is done. God gave the sacrifice so that whosoever would believe on the sacrifice. And if they did, they wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. Love for the world is only tied to the love of the sacrifice. Huh. Prove it, Pastor. My friends, I don't have to go far. I just have to go to the next verse. Look at it, verse 17 and 18. From verse 17 and 18, we're going to say, Houston, we have a problem. 
For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The world through the sacrifice was to be saved. The world did not have to be condemned. There was a sacrifice of which the Father loved. How do we know it? Because the sacrifice was his only begotten Son. That means, in the Greek, the word only begotten means the single or the only one of its kind. The only one that could ever be given of its kind was the only begotten Son of God who was sacrificed by the love of God, loving that sacrifice, and giving that sacrifice so the world could be saved. Now, God did not send that Son to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He was the only one of his kind. The world then uh, would be that God had sacrificed his love for them, believing on the work of the sacrifice and be saved, thereby being released from the condemnation due to the work of the sacrifice. Now look at verse 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he's not believed on the name of the only one of its kind who was the Son of God. Look at this. God is condemning the very world that we are telling he supposedly loves just as they are. Our narrative cannot be being accurately taught. Greater yet, the entire narrative points to the sacrifice, not the world. The world is only included in his love for the sacrifice when they believe upon the things that the sacrifice accomplished. If they don't, verse 18 tells us right up front, they are condemned. Now wait a minute. 16, as we teach it, says they are so loved. 18 tells us if they don't do what's right by the sacrifice, they're condemned. Come on now. We're telling the world, don't worry about where you are. God loves you, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. And the drug dealer's peddling dope. And he's uh, saying to himself, they're telling me, God loves me, God loves me. So here's dope, put the money in my pocket. God loves me, everything's going to be all right because God loves me. He loves the world, he loves me. And God is saying to them in the words of Jesus, God loves the sacrifice. The sacrifice is provided for you to come to the sacrifice. And if you do, you won't be condemned. But if you don't, you're condemned already because God's love is given to this world through the sacrifice, by the sacrifice, because he loves the sacrifice. Now, if we don't believe that, then we're condemned already. The world is only included in his love because of the sacrifice. They have to believe upon the accomplished work of the sacrifice. If they do not, my friend, they are condemned. Condemnation does not reflect the love, a love. It reflects that they have rejected 
the love of the sacrifice. So they are not only condemned, but they are condemned right now. They're already condemned. So our teaching of this scripture is absolute error to tell the world how God loved them more than he loved his son. Because that's what we're telling them. We're telling them God loves you more than he loves the son. Not correct to say the love of the sacrifice, the only begotten son of God, opened a path for the world to come out of condemnation and to come into the love of God that was directed towards the sacrifice. We can get into the love of God. There's no doubt about that. But if you're going to come into the love of God, you're going to have to come in through the love of the only begotten Son of God who was your sacrifice. You will not come in under any other way and any other kind of message is going to be a misrepresentation of truth because in verse 18, he says, if you have not believed on what the sacrifice did, you're condemned. So our teaching is an error because if God loves the world more than the sacrifice, then why would those who don't believe in the accomplished work of the sacrifice be condemned? You see, the direction of this verse is going not to the rendering of the love of God for the world. It is the truth concerning His love for the only begotten Son of God, the sacrifice. We must reconcile this to our understanding and teach it correctly to people because what we've done is we have taught it in such a fashion that people are now in total misunderstanding of what the love of God has done what it has done for them, and what their frame of reference to God and the man in the Godhead bodily because they have never come through the sacrifice and they have never followed Jesus Christ. Well, then there is the idea of Scripture where Jesus spoke concerning the concept of no man being plucked out of my hand. Well, that's an interesting concept. And all of those who believe in once in grace, always in grace, give substance to this. And this became a major part of the grace message. Unfortunately, that is a total misrepresentation and taken out of context in reference to what Jesus is teaching. So who was he speaking to? The Jews. There was never a doubt about who the Jews were to him or the Father. They were called the elect. The children of Israel will maintain their relationship to the Godhead throughout the millennium. There's nothing that anything or anyone will do to alter that position. There's going to come a day when he will rise up and personally defend Israel. So Israel was to know where they stood in the economy of God. And Jesus told them exactly where they were in John 10 and exactly what was coming right down to them being scattered in verse 12 of John 10. So we often misguide the people. In so doing, we lessen the chance of the people desiring to hear of the one who is behind the activity of the Holy Spirit. Why would they? Based upon our messaging, they are loved more than the sacrifice. Huh. 
And because of that, there is no possibility of that love that it will ever let them go. They can't be plucked out of his hand according to our teaching. So what do we need the voice of Jesus? What do we need the Holy Spirit for? We don't need any of that. We have been told by the intellect of man that God loves us more than the sacrifice and if we say we believe in him, we'll never be able to be plucked out of his hand. What a misrepresentation of scripture. So it becomes evident that as the light dims on the work that is ongoing from our churches, and we struggle to identify the differences between the gradual's dimming, that dimming becomes absolute normal to us. There is a reason. The message of truth is being preached in error. Error leads to what? Paul said it. He said that it leads to them expressing another gospel. Pastor, if this were happening, then why are some churches still growing and seeing people saved? Are they? Are they really seeing people become followers, disciples of Jesus Christ? Or are they handing out this belief system like candy to a kid and saying, raise your hand and say you believe in Jesus. Well, you're saved. You're saved. Oh, we had so many saved today. Did you? Have we really had uh, people brought to know the truth about what the sacrifice did for us? Or have we brought them into a pseudo-Christianity because we have told them about how much God loves them and how much if they'll just say this, they'll never be plucked out of God's hands? My friends, we're operating in error. How did we get to this position of operating in error? I'll tell you. Very simple. Very simple. John 14, 17 says, He is even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But he says to those who are in the know concerning the work of the Holy Spirit, concerning the work of the Comforter, and concerning the fact that Jesus Christ will never leave you, he will comfort you and he will come to you. He says to those, but you know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Well, what a difference now. We see a total difference here. We see those who are looking for the love of God and saying the love of God is your ticket to eternal security and that there is no way for you to be plucked out of his hand. And then we're seeing Jesus teach us that the world does not know him and doesn't see him, and, and so in neither knowing him or seeing him, what is being done in the inner man? Nothing. Nothing. Because we are giving it away like candy, and people are walking away with an entire misunderstanding of what Scripture means, what it says, what it is about, and we have said to the Holy Spirit, you just sit over here. We don't have time for you. You don't operate at the pace we want you to. So intellectually, we're going to say to you these words that are absolutely scripturally unsound, spiritually unsettling, 
and in the economy of God, they have severed the relationship that could have been when based upon correct teaching. Paul called it another gospel. Now notice further on this. They could not see him in operation. So to say, oh, I'm at the end of time. I've already come through 30 minutes on this, bless God. I'll have to do another session and there'll be a couple of more sessions on this because I want this taught through and through. Father, I pray that you will bless this word and open our eyes that we can see and our ears that we can hear and our heart that we can understand so that we can know truth and truth can set us free. Not set us, make us. Make us. Make us put in a position where we can no longer be held captive to any of the foolishness of this world. May you do it and do it in Jesus' name and we will give you praise and honor and glory for all of it. So that ends part four. We'll be back with part five and uh, we'll be looking forward to sharing that with you. Probably do so tomorrow. And I want to invite you to Wednesday night service at 645, 645 to 7. We generally go about an hour teaching the Word of God. You don't want to miss it. It's a wonderful time. May God richly bless you is my prayer. My Facebook friends, I will look forward to seeing you soon. Goodbye. Well, glory to God, what have I done? Did I? I'm still there. <laughs> my podcast friends, may God richly bless you. Find Him as Lord. And there you'll find him as the man who is mediating the new covenant. Find him as the man in the Godhead bodily though. And from there he'll speak to you and show you great and mighty things that are to come. May God bless you until we have the chance to speak again.